Prof. Getzel. He is Senior Scientist and Director of the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Vice President of Consulting and Applied Research for IBM Watson Health. And the mission of his Institute for Health and Productivity Studies at Johns Hopkins is to bridge the gap between academia, the business community, and the healthcare policy world, bringing academic resources into policy debates and day-to-day business decisions. Institutions of education include um, New York University and City College of New York. So at this point, I'd like to help me in welcoming Prof. Getzel. This is uh, part two of my presentation, uh, where I'm going to give you a little bit more depth and data. And uh, also, I decided, you know, last night I was going to inject some humor in the form of cartoons to make you laugh and uh, to have a good time while learning. It's always good to enjoy learning and not just find it to be uh, boring and uh, uninspirational. So hopefully. Some of the jokes and cartoons that uh, I've in- inserted in there resonate here in Jamaica. So this time, uh, more discussion about the evidence base for workplace wellness programs. And indeed, yes, I'm still in Jamaica. Yaman, that's great. <laughs> Let me uh, turn attention to the U.S., Uh, this big behemoth country up north where we are spending a ton of money not on health care. It's called health care, but it's really sick care. It's really treatment of sickness. Uh, We in the United States spend a boatload of money, $3.5 trillion a year, and that translates to over $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States, In a little while, I'm going to show you some of the Jamaica statistics in comparison. But preview, it's less than that. It's less than that. Uh, In the United States, of course, we have uh, a system where employment, employers, businesses pay for your health care up until the time that you retire and you join Medicare, which is the national system. We have a system for poor people called Medicaid. But about half of the amount that is spent is spent by the private sector, employers. And so employers actually have a huge stake in the health and well-being of their workers, unlike everybody else in the healthcare field. So if you think about it, a hospital, a pharmaceutical company, a doctor, all those principles in there, they want to get more money. And the way they get more money is by having people get sicker. Uh, employers, on the other hand, are the only, the only group, the only stakeholder out there that's trying to keep you out of the healthcare system because if you're not in the healthcare system, you'll save them money and you'll also be at work. You'll be physically at work and mentally at work. So in the United States, um, when uh, we put Medicare in place in 1964, healthcare was a very small amount of spending, you know, less than 1% of GDP, gross domestic product. And interestingly enough, the Doctors Association in America, the American Medical Association, was fiercely opposed to Medicare. They called it socialized medicine. Of course, today, 
Doctors and the AMA love Medicare because it's guaranteed health insurance for their practices, and they, they do very well. So today, roughly 18% of all of our gross domestic product, all of the output, all the dollars spent by our economy is spent on health care. That's, that's a huge amount, as I'll show you. And 90% of this huge amount of money, of trillions of dollars, is for people with chronic physical and mental health conditions. So about three-quarters of the amount of money we spend is on chronic health care problems. This is not acute, somebody suddenly going to the hospital. And if you're an elderly person, if you're a senior in the United States, about 99% of the money is spent on chronic conditions. So very simply, when somebody walks up to you and says, well, what are you going to do about this? Here's a simple list. Quit smoking, eat healthy, get regular exercise, avoid drinking too much, get screened appropriately, get enough sleep, know your family history and what to watch out for. And the final item here is much harder, which is make healthy choices at school, at work, and in the community. All right, that's when we start thinking beyond ourselves as individuals and we start thinking about our surround, our environment. And I'll have much more to say about that, some very recent research we've done that looks at the community and what employers can do to improve the health of communities. So again, the vast majority of chronic disease can be prevented, better managed. That's 80% of heart disease and, and stroke, 80% of type 2 diabetes, 40% of cancer, could be prevented if Americans and Jamaicans could do these three things, which your mother and grandmother and great-grandmother told you to do. Stop smoking, eat healthy, get in shape. Very, very simple, right? Very simple. So uh, what about Jamaican statistics? And uh, again, I went exploring on websites to look at some, some of these data. So you have roughly 3 million people on the island. Is that about right? Okay. And the gross national income per capita, that is what people make on average around $8,500 a year, which is about 20% a fifth of what the U.S. per capita income is. Life expectancy, somebody asked this question, how long do people live in Jamaica? Males live on average until age 74 females, women, until age 78. Probability of dying under five, uh, under the age of five per thousand live births is 15, but the probability of dying between 15 and 60, that's your kind of adult age, your, your working life age, is 165 per thousand uh, for males and 98 for females. Now, when you can think about that, these are, if you multiply that by your population, these are life years lost. These are productive life years that people have lost because of illness. They haven't really lived a full life, and they haven't contributed fully to themselves, their families, their community, and society when they die prematurely at age 60. And even you can extend that to 65, really, because people have productive lives beyond 65. I'm an example of that. I'm, I'm still working, and I'm above age 65. <laughs> Uh, so we can continue to contribute to the world and society and, and to who we are. Uh, the amount that is spent on health care in Jamaica, 
Remember, $10,000 in the U.S., it's $476 here in Jamaica. And health care is a per percentage of gross domestic product, 5.4%, compared to, again, the United States, where it's about 18%. So you're spending less money. But on the other hand, some of your outcomes, life expectancy, is not that great. But however, let me point this out. And what this is showing is U.S., of course, spending the most amount of money. It is still about twice as much. We spend twice as much as other industrialized countries in the world, where the amount is about four or $5,000 per capita. And you can see some countries off on the right-hand side are spending far, far less money. And you would think that if you spend more money, people are going to live longer. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, people live longest in Japan. But you can see here that the life expectancy is the bars, but the amount that is spent on health care is that jagged red line. And uh, Japan is spending a lot less money. In fact, most countries are spending a lot less money. And then all of a sudden, we get to the United States, which spends a lot of money, but the life expectancy is actually much lower than all those other countries spending less money. Here's another way of looking at life expectancy. Looks like a bunch of worms moving up. So the other countries represented there, Japan, the UK, Norway, Italy, Canada, France, Netherlands, all of their life expectancies are increasing over time. The United States is flattening out, flattening out. In fact, in some demographic groups, mostly white males, white males living in rural America, their life expectancy is dropping. It's actually getting shorter. And that's largely because of opiate addiction, homicide, suicide, and despair, just feeling not part of society, feeling alienated, feeling not connected to other people. Life expectancy in the United States is dropping for white males in living in rural America. Now, we do lead in some areas, for example, diabetes. We have uh, the highest prevalence rate uh, after Mexico and Turkey, and Mexico has taken very innovative steps to try to address obesity and diabetes, putting a sugar tax on beverages, on sodas, for example. And obesity, yeah, we, again, are up there. Uh, yesterday, there were some statistics cited uh, that about a third of the world is overweight or obese. In the United States, it's two-thirds of the population Two out of every three people is overweight or obese in the United States. And, of course, that is connected to diabetes, heart disease, and all other disorders. Uh, I found these data on Jamaica in terms of the prevalence of risk factors for Jamaica. This is yeah, some old data. It's about 10 years old, but I couldn't find anything more recent. So about a quarter of the pop population having hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, Pre-hypertension, about 35%, about a third of the population. Diabetes, about 8%. High cholesterol, 11%. Overweight and obese, uh, we're talking about uh, 50%. So you're moving up there in the world in terms of overweight and obesity, not quite at the U.S., but getting there. 
Cigarette smoking, about 17%. That's higher than the U.S. The U.S. we're now at about 15% cigarette smoking. Uh, that's past current smokers, about 15% here. Alcohol use past 4.2%, but current alcohol use 65%. Now, alcohol use in moderation is not a problem, but excess alcohol use that is chronic, heavy drinking or binge drinking, that is a problem. That is a problem. Obviously, that also translates to road accidents and homicide and suicide and things like that. So what else is going on that we should know about? You know, even though we're in the island of Jamaica, there are other things happening around us very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of outsourcing, downsizing, layoffs, reductions in force, mergers, acquisitions, consolidations, global competition. We were talking last night about Chinese influence on the world economy and how they're setting up businesses here in Jamaica. Pressure for innovation, adaptation, reengineering, increased reliance on technology, and information overload. So here's where I start to inject some humor and cartoons. Uh, we're outsourcing your bathroom breaks to a person in another country. Uh, your mother and I have called this family meeting to announce some layoffs. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce you to our new employee fitness program, Eat Less, Lose Weight, and a Low-Salary Diet. <laughs> uh, of course, in the United States, as is the case in a lot of the world, there's a lot of malfeasance, corporate malfeasance, corruption. This is the new Monopoly board game. Uh, go to jail is every space you end up with. <laughs> And I, I love what Stephen Wright, a comedian in America, says. Uh, I think it's wrong that only one company makes the game Monopoly. <laughs> so what else is going on? Well, uh, even in manufacturing, the new employee is much more of a knowledge worker, talking about people in chemical plants and refineries and so forth. They're not actually, I mean, some of them are still doing physical labor, but a lot of them are sitting in computer rooms watching knobs and dials, right, making sure things don't go awry. And you need to be awake, you need to be aware, you need to be focused to be able to make sure there's no major accident. Um, now, productivity used to be at, at a high. Actually, it's begun to level off recently. Uh, but the idea is to have fewer workers do more work. So that's a way to measure productivity. And some research done by Søren Matke some years ago said in the United States, about $260 billion a year is spent on lost productivity due to health care problems. I mean, that's a major hit on the economy. People going to work but being unproductive because of health problems. So um, oftentimes when you're at the business, you get this kind of memo from your boss that says we want more, more, and more. The new productivity goals are in. And as you walk down the hallway, oftentimes you see people suffering from burnout, right? So businesses are trying to figure out how to get more out of their workers, how to get the workers to be more productive. So here's some ideas. Uh, introduce technology, and that actually uh, has been the case for decades and decades where technology is taking over ro robots, computers, and so forth. Uh, taking over many of the menial tasks at work, get workers to work more hours, and we in the United States actually work the most hours 
of any industrialized country in the world, more so than Japan now. Make sure that workers show up for work. Make sure that they're mentally at work. And again, that's the idea of presenteeism. And importantly, increase motivation or engagement to work at peak performance. So you want people to want to be at work. You want people in the morning to get out of bed and say, I'm looking forward to going to work this morning. I love my job. I love my coworkers. I love what the company is doing to help me. Okay. So here's an example of technology. This is Dilbert cartoons we have in the United States. Uh, Alice, I just sent you an email. Here's a copy of my message, and I'll just tell you what it says. It says, I sent you a voicemail telling you to look out for a fax that says I want to talk to you. <laughs> How often does that happen where we don't actually go to the next cubicle and talk to somebody? And I love voicemail, right? If you'd like to press 1, press 3. If you'd like to press 3, press 8. A little confusing there. Thank you for continuing to hold. If you'd like us to contact your family and let them know that you're okay, press 1. And, of course, the phones that are always with us. Uh, wow, you don't have a cell phone. What do you do with your mouth when you're walking? So I don't know if that's true here, but especially in New York City, if you walk around the streets there, everybody is talking to nobody in particular. They're just talking into the air. And in the old days when I was growing up, that was called schizophrenia, when you would talk to just and nobody was there. But uh, that may be a way of treating mental disorders, have people talk to each other that way. Um, and, of course, you have to be careful because these people are crossing the street not paying attention to where they're walking, right? This is an old poem, uh, Two Roads Diverged in the Wood and I Was Texting. <laughs> Walt Whitman uh, poem, updated. Uh, it does get confusing sometimes, right? <laughs> uh, wait, uh, take this one with my phone, please. So that's... <laughs> Uh, this is a moral dilemma at Mercy Hospital. You have to think about this one here. <laughs> I don't know how to tell time yet, but I do know that I have to walk a thousand steps more if I'm to reach my daily fitness goal. And uh, care to see pictures of every meal I've ordered in the restaurant in the past 45 years? This is future millennials who are getting together, their grandparents. And how many? Anyway. Uh, do you have to check for messages now during dinner? And after 47 years in management, it was only appropriate that he be buried in paperwork. Oh, I know. Morbid. Kids and I built a sand cubicle for you. This is on vacation here on the beach, right? All right, so this is the fallout from this push for higher productivity. You have more job demands, detachment, depersonalization, not connecting to people, increased healthcare use, more absenteeism, an impact on morale, disability, accidents work-life imbalance, and high stress. So as you get pushed and pushed and pushed, these are the things that are being inflicted on our workers. 
I don't know about you, but I learned about stress management for my kids. Every night after work, I'd drink some chocolate milk, eat sugary cereal straight from the box, run around the house in my underwear squealing like a monkey. This, by the way, does work. You know, this is a very effective stress management technique. Or if you don't want to go through all that trouble, go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I'm learning how to relax. I want to relax better and faster. I want to be on the cutting edge of relaxation. So tell me how to do that. So when you get all of these things hitting you and your workers, uh, you increase the health and productivity of your workforce. Uh, increase the health risk and productivity risk of your workforce. And it can come in many forms. So medical conditions, chest and back pain, heart disease, gastrointestinal disorders, headaches, dizziness, weakness, repetitive motion injuries. And we'll hear more about ergonomics later. But there's also psychological risk. Anxiety, aggression, irritability, apathy, boredom, depression, loneliness, fatigue, moodiness, insomnia. Behavioral problems, you have more accidents, drug and alcohol abuse problems, eating disorders, smoking, tardiness, exaggerated diseases when people don't want to come to work. And all of that, of course, has an impact on the organization, absenteeism, poor work relations, high turnover, low morale, poor job satisfaction, and overall productivity and performance. And these things are all tied together. But when we think about them, oftentimes we're not doing them all together. We're not considering them all together. Each different department have, has a role, and they don't talk to each other. So you have employee occupational health and safety. You have benefits. You have EAP. You have human resources organizational development, operations, all in different silos in a company, not working together, not sharing data, not sharing strategy, not sharing the way to address these problems. An example uh, here again from Dilbert, their free blood pressure screening today. Your value is 135 over 88. You're below company average. Here's some more work. <laughs> How long do you think you can get away with that? So what do you do? You know, so all of you are here with ideas of what to do, but there's a long list of ideas of what you can do. And they oftentimes fall into these different categories that say, well, you can do better disease management, you manage disability and absence, health and demand, stress, get a better EAP program, re-engineer, reorganize, get incentives, cut pharmacy benefits. These are all the things that you can do and, you know, here in Jamaica, of course, you have to pay extra for insurance for pharmacy benefits. And you want to start cutting those back. For example, you may have to make some tough choices like the Rogaine or the Viagra. One of them has to go from the formulary, right? Uh, this antidepressant works best if you take it with water lapping near your hammock on a Caribbean beach, right? That's the best treatment out there, certainly if... People spend a week here at Half Moon, their stress and depression goes down. So uh, we in the United States, of course, and, of, and here as well, many of us spend more time at work than we spend sleeping and less time eating, less time with family. But we're really captive in a good or a bad way at work. We're spending more than eight hours, sometimes nine, ten hours at work, and sometimes even more. 
and we're getting less sleep, less time. It's crowding out all the other things that are important to us. So I showed this yesterday, today, with some more citations. The evidence base for workplace health promotion, and if you have to go and make the business case to your boss, this is the one slide you need. This is the one slide that summarizes it all. It says, a large proportions of diseases and disorders is preventable. These diseases and disorders predict premature death and morbidity. These things cost money. Modifiable risk factors cost money. You can do something about them. You can move the needle on modifiable risk factors. If you improve the health and well-being in the population, that's going to save you money and improve productivity. And yes, Ron Getzel and others have done research showing that these things can actually produce a positive return on investment. I'll show you some of those studies in a moment. So the first uh, idea is that poor health costs money. And again, this is obvious to most people, but they don't think about beyond medical costs. They think, uh, think about absenteeism, work loss, presenteeism, and risk factors. So for example, in one study we published, we looked at conditions, health conditions, that are the most common, most expensive in the United States. We have a large database called MarketScan, and we went up and asked the question on a per capita basis, not just the people who have the diseases, but across the entire population, which are the most expensive conditions, not just medical, but also absenteeism and disability. And if you go up the list here, you see angina, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, low back disorders, AMI, which is heart attack, COPD, back disorders. It doesn't take a lot to realize that these have a very large lifestyle component attached to them. So lifestyle is predicting these disorders, has a large component, but it's not just medical, it's also absenteeism and disability that's related. Now, if you bring in the concept of presenteeism, so these are 10 conditions, common conditions again, and you ask the question, how much of the money spent is spent on medical costs compared to presenteeism costs? And it turns out that for these conditions, like depression, like unmanaged hypertension, like allergies, like migraine headaches, presenteeism is more expensive than, absentee than, than, than medical costs. In fact, it's a two-to-one ratio. Presenteeism is twice as expensive as direct medical costs for these conditions. So people are coming to work, but they're really not performing at an optimal level because they have health conditions that are not being well managed. Um, Karen and Jessica are here from HERO, and they'll talk more about HERO. Karen is going to talk more about that. We've done a series of HERO studies. We're getting ready to publish our third study. Stay tuned. <laughs> uh, but in this uh, analysis, we looked, connected employees' health risk data back to their medical claims data. We have a large database of insurance claims for employees. And in this study, we had about 90,000 people that we could follow over three years and look at how they responded to a health assessment and then look at their medical spending next three years. And this is an example of a table from that table, from that paper. And what we saw, that if you control for the other risk factors and other confounders, people who told you on a health assessment that they were depressed, everything else held equal, were 50% more expensive than people who were not depressed. 
50% more expensive. Now, if they had high blood glucose, they were about a third more expensive. If they had high blood pressure, about a third more expensive. If they were obese, about a quarter more expensive, and so forth. So for each of these risk factors, we looked at how much money they cost, how many people were in that pool, how many people had the risk factor. And even though depression was the most expensive at the person level, at the population level, it was really obesity and physical inactivity that were most costly because if you combine them together and look at these costs per capita, most expensive condition was obesity in the workplace followed by physical inactivity, which is, by the way, the cheapest medical intervention you can have, just getting people to move every 30 minutes, get up and move around. And then depression was following that. Uh, this was another study looking at obesity specifically. Um, this was a large National Institute of Health uh, study where we had multiple centers around the country collecting data. We collected their overweight and obesity and then looked at their doctor visits, emergency room visits, hospital admissions, absenteeism days, presenteeism days. And in each case, not surprisingly, the obese category of workers was much more expensive in each of these categories. So what are you going to do about this, right? Well, this is uh, back in the old days, you had fat televisions and skinny people. Now it's the other way around, right? <laughs> so it, obesity is not something you can blame people for because we're surrounded by an environment that encourages obesity, essentially. Uh, for example, more people are driving. They're driving shorter distances. They're not walking. They're not bicycling. Uh, we have a lot of, quote-unquote, labor-saving devices. Uh, my uh, wife's mother lives in Massachusetts. She has a car where you have to roll up the window <laughs> with a crank. When was the last time that ever happened? <laughs> really? Uh, but, you know, talking about washing machines, talking about the dishwashers, these are all labor-saving devices, but they also don't generate the energy to do the work. You don't have to go to the river to clean your clothes anymore. Uh, Ready-made foods, which are uh, often you know, done by industrial uh, conglomerates as opposed to you preparing the food from fresh ingredients. Uh, we're watching a lot more screens, television, computers, video games, and we're sitting most of the time, which is what we're doing at this conference. You know, a lot of our time is spent sitting instead of standing, walking around, being physically active. And we have these things called elevators and escalators and automatic doors and moving sidewalks. I don't know if you have moving sidewalks here in Jamaica. It, they're awful invention, terrible. You know, it's people standing there waiting for the moving sidewalk to get them from point A to point B. And they block the way for us who want to walk. So what do you do now? What do you do with all this, these data showing you that we've got problems? Well, do you go out and fire everybody who has a risk factor? You know, everybody who has a risk factor, you're not eating right, you're not exercising, you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, overweight, do you go and fire them? You better not, because if you were to do that, you would be left with less than 5% of the population that doesn't have any of these risk factors. Fewer than 5% of the people don't have at least one of these risk factors we've talked about. So that's not the solution. What you've got to do is think about what you're doing and offer interventions and workplace health promotion is obviously a good set of interventions because you've got people in the workplace, they're captured, they're spending 
a good portion of their lives there, and the evidence is that these programs can work. So here's a summary of the systematic review we did for the community guide, uh, looking at good quality studies, most of them actually randomized control studies or uh, case control studies, and we found that there was sufficient or strong evidence that these workplace programs can have a positive impact on alcohol use, percent fat intake in the diet, physical activity, tobacco use, seatbelt use. Also, strong evidence that these programs can reduce blood pressure, cholesterol. Uh, on overweight and obesity, it, there's a scattering of studies. Some studies have shown it, and, but it's not big, big differences in overweight and obesity. In fact, the study we did with Dow Chemical, which was a multi-year study, we found that the treatment group maintained their weight and BMI, but the control group, their weight went up over two years. So it was a positive, statistically significant result, but we didn't actually lower weight of the population. We just kept it stable, which may be good enough. And then uh, the economic analysis done by the CDC showed that these programs, there was sufficient or strong evidence that they can improve overall risk of the population and healthcare utilization and productivity. What about ROI, right? So this is what your uh, decision makers are asking for, that skeptical CFO that we saw yesterday. To get there, first thing you need to do is build awareness of the program. Number two, you have people, you need to get people engaged, participating in the program. The more the merrier. Number three, give them the skills, the knowledge, the know-how to change their behavior and to do the right thing in terms of behavioral choices. Number four, change their attitudes. Is the company doing this to help me or is it doing it to save money? So what's your attitude about the program and the employer? Now, if you buy into all of that, you're aware, you participate, you get the skills, over time, and we're not talking about tomorrow, we're talking about 12, 24, 36 months, you're going to change your behavior. You're going to eat healthier, you're going to exercise more and manage your stress, manage blood pressure. That will reduce your risk for disease. That will reduce utilization of services. And if you do it right and you spend the right amount of money, you have the potential for a positive ROI, return on investment. And again, we've published a number of papers on this. This is one of the older papers with Citibank program in the 1990s. They had a very significant ROI of over four to one. Uh, this is a study with Highmark, a health plan in Pennsylvania. Very rigorous program, very rigorous evaluation, a positive return on investment of 1.65 to one. This is a study with Johnson & Johnson where we, we followed them for over a six year period looked at their entire population, again, very rigorous methods, had an ROI there, somewhere between two to one to four to one for their program. There's a study done with Dell Computer, and there also there is a positive ROI that we found. Duke University employees, here the ROI was about $2.50 for every dollar invested. So there isn't a shortage of studies out there showing the health and economic impacts of these programs. But these studies are hard to do, they take a long time, and they're very expensive to do. So I want you to quit smoking and lose 40 pounds, and I want you to come back and tell me how the heck you did it, right? So this is the burden 
placed on our medical system where they oftentimes don't know how to advise people. It's really the experts in the room, the coaches and counselors, the people who are specializing in behavior change who know how to do this. Now, so far, uh, I've focused on individual programs, and most of you are in that business of how to get individuals to improve their health and well-being. But the, as we found out yesterday, it's really the organization, the surround, the culture that has to be healthy. And so we've begun a series of studies that have looked at organizational health and how it connects back to individual health outcomes and even more recently, community health. So this is a study published in 2017 with the American Heart Association. And we looked at their scorecard. So there are a bunch of scorecards out there. Hero scorecard, Jessica, gave you a lot of information about the Hero scorecard yesterday. There's a CDC scorecard. And the American Heart Association also has a scorecard. And by the way, they use many of the same items in all these scorecards. They beg, borrow, and steal from each other all over the place. Uh, but this is a scorecard that looks at programs, policies, environmental supports, and how that may affect the risk profile for heart disease and disease prevalence, looking at cardiovascular health and cardiovascular costs. So the question being asked is, what's the relationship between organizational health and individual employee health? So uh, the company that I work for, IBM, uh, one of the nice things they have is large, large, large databases, millions and millions of people. We can go into those databases and pick out people and connect the dots uh, to other things that are of interest. So this is a study where we took data from 20 large companies, big companies. Uh, they had about 370,000 workers in those companies. And we also had their health risk data. We also had their disease prevalence data. We also had their medical insurance claims data, all connected at the person level. And this was the rubric that the American Heart Association has that looks at seven risk factors for heart disease. It's called Life Simple Seven, things that you would expect, smoking, physical activity, healthy diet, healthy weight, glucose, cholesterol, blood pressure. And they put these into three categories, poor health, intermediate, and ideal health. Ideal health is where we want everybody to be, but as I mentioned earlier, less than 5% of Americans are in the ideal health category. Everybody else is somewhere else. So we defined poor health using those definitions as here, blood pressure, systolic greater than 120, greater than 80, cholesterol greater than 200, blood sugar greater than 100, uh, physical inactivity, not getting 150 moderate minutes, physical activity minutes a week, uh, diet and nutrition, mostly eating fruits and vegetables, overweight, uh, being above BMI of 25, and smoking cigarettes. Those are the risk factors we defined. And we found out in this group of companies, big companies, very generous health benefits, that the health profile was not that great. 72% of the workers were unhealthy weight. 71% had a poor diet. Two-thirds had high blood pressure, half had physically inactive, 28% high cholesterol, 25% high glucose, and the only good metric here, only 5.5% were smokers. But everything else looked pretty bad. And then we connected the dots in this very complicated chart <laughs> that looked at 
the organizational health variables on top. So leadership commitment, organization policies, strategic communication, healthy programs, engagement, and so forth. And we connected it to the person and the overall score, which is on the left side, total health index. And here, we found that four risk factors were significantly negatively correlated with high scores. So the healthier the organization, the lower the risk for blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking, physical inactivity, significantly so. However, disease prevalent, disease, yeah, disease prevalence was also lower, so less heart disease, but the cost of the diseases when you had the disease was higher. So fewer people had the disease, but if they had the disease, the expense was higher. And you can see the greens are where you had a positive correlation with good organizational health, the reds, negative correlation. So we had mixed results, even though two-thirds of the outcomes were where we'd expect, about a third were not. And we said, well, maybe the problem is that we're not looking at trend lines, and we're not looking at all the factors that are important. So this is uh, uh, one of my staff members, Karen Kent, who wrote this article that described what healthy company cultures look like. And the way that we did this study, this was supported by the Robert Johnson Foundation. We went out and visited companies, nine companies are listed here, some large, some small, manufacturing, IT companies all over the map. And we talked to the workers, we talked to the CEO, we talked to the financial people, we talked to the program implementers and said, how, do you, how did you create a good culture of health at this company? How did you do that? And you saw this yesterday. This was our top ten list of things that they came up with and said, this, these are, this is the secret sauce, the magic ingredients, the formula for healthy company culture, starting with establishing a culture of health. And what does that mean? What does a culture of health mean? It's more than a program. It's a way of life. That's how they described it to us. You know, people come here and they feel healthier because they're in this environment, because everything surrounding them is yelling and screaming, be healthy. So it's part of their business mission, the built environment, their performance metrics, often for their management, and even individuals. Let me give you a little story of that. One company, Lincoln Industries in, the, in Omaha, Nebraska, they, each employee has a set of objectives that they have to achieve that year, right? Like everybody else, this is what I'm going to do this year. And they're graded and reviewed based upon the objective. But there's a requirement that one of those objectives be health and well-being oriented. You come up with the objective, but you have to put it down on your list of key objectives for the year. And here are some things that are acceptable. Have dinner with my family five nights a week is an objective that you can be graded against, right? This is your commitment to your own health and well-being. And your boss is going to say, did you do this? And if you say yes, they say, great, you get a check. Okay, you, get, you accomplish your objective for the year on that dimension. So this is hard to do, which is why you're all in business. This is uh, very hard to get companies to adopt best practices and create healthy company environments. So we, we, we have aligned with Robert Johnson Foundation for many years because they have a healthy culture mantra. They believe in creating a culture of health, one in which good health and well-being flourish across geographic, demographic, social sectors, 
fostering healthy, equitable communities, guiding public and private decision-making. Everyone has an opportunity to make a choice to lead to a healthy lifestyle. Okay? So they, they funded a project. They said, okay, we like what you did with the American Heart Association. We want you to expand that. We want you to not only look at culture of health inside the company, but also culture of health in the community. Can you do that? So the question was, do businesses that invest more in employee health and community health outperform those businesses that invest less? Looking at their health risk profile, medical costs, and stock price. So these were the big ideas. Internal culture of health, external culture of health. Internal programs, activities, policies that when executed, support a business case to improve the health of your workers. External activities, programs, policies, environmental supports, when executed, improve the health of your community. So this is the model. I'm not going to go through a lot of it. But this is a logic model, basically, that says if you invest in your workers, in the internal culture of health, through leadership commitment, strategic communication, social and environmental supports with programs and policies, Eventually, you're going to get people who are going to take better care of themselves. They're going to use healthcare services better. Your brand and reputation as a business is going to be improved. Morale is going to be improved. You're going to be, have an easier time attracting and retaining the top talent. You're going to have more skilled and devoted workers. They're going to be more productive. You're going to reduce the cost of doing business. You're going to have better business outcomes. And overall, better health lower costs, and improve stock performance. All right? Sounds reasonable. That's the logic model. Same is true for external culture of health, but a little bit different. And here it's much harder to define. So how do you define investing in the community? Charitable giving, certainly. Supporting for employee volunteerism. Giving people time off to volunteer in their community and helping community, communities become healthier organizational commitment, and public leadership in that community, saying, we believe in this, we think the entire community ought to be healthier. And again, this is improved brand and reputation, better stakeholder relationships, healthier, more vibrant communities, increased productivity, reduced costs, improved business performance, improved employee health, lower employee health care costs, and improved stock performance. So that's the model that we looked at. And is there any evidence showing that this is true? Yeah, not so much. Actually, there's been very, very little research looking at what businesses can do to improve community health. But there's, there's an initiative that is coming out of Robert Johnson Foundation, supported by Harvard University, and also in America, the Business Roundtable, where in August of this year, the Business Roundtable, 181 of the biggest companies in America, said, you know, our requirement is not just to increase the value of stockholders you know, not to increase, that's, that's, yes, that's important, but we also need to invest in our workers, we need to invest in our communities, we need to invest in the environment, our suppliers, and our consumers, our customers. So our mission is much more broadly than just making more money. So in this study with Robert Johnson Foundation, uh, we again recruited 38 large businesses. We administered surveys looking at internal culture of health, external culture of health. We connected 
those surveys to their claims data and risk data. We use regression methodologies to predict outcomes. And then we also looked at their stock price. So the data sources were an internal culture of health, which was developed using existing instruments by and large. The external culture of health survey was brand new. We had to come up with that. We had risk data and claims data, and we had stock price data. So just to give you a glance at what the survey looked like, this is the internal culture of health, again, borrowing heavily from the HERO scorecard, CDC scorecard, American Heart Association scorecard. External culture of health, much harder. We talked to a lot of experts, said, how do you operationally define external culture of health? They gave us ideas, but I think we're in an early stage now of defining what it means to be focused on the community and its culture of health. And this is what that survey looked like, focused on these four categories. So one of the interesting findings was that um, there was actually very little correlation between internal and external culture of health. So companies that said we have a good internal culture of health did not necessarily have a good external culture of health, and vice versa. So that tells us that these are governed by different parts of the organization. You have the health and well-being department, medical department, occupational health and safety department, and then you have the corporate social responsibility department, but they don't talk to each other. When we looked at the data and we looked at internal culture of health, we did find statistically significant improvements in alcohol use, blood pressure management, depression, nutrition, tobacco use, and weight. These are all the risk factors went down as the internal culture of health scores went up. Stress went the opposite direction. We also found a reduction in pharmacy fills, so reduced rate of prescription drug medication as culture of health internal improved. External culture of health, we also found good patterns. We found a reduction in cholesterol, glucose, stress, tobacco use, depression, went up the wrong way again for external culture of health. But here in healthcare use, we found reductions in hospital admissions and emergency department visits. So as the company's external culture of health improved, fewer hospitalization, fewer emergency department visits. What about stock price? Okay. So here again, we looked at the stock price of companies with high internal culture of health compared to the Standard & Poor's 500. This is a shorter time period than what I showed you yesterday with the COOP winners. This is from 2013 through 2017. And the U.S. stock market went up about 70% during that time. But these companies with high internal culture of health, their stock price went up 115%. So once again, they outperformed the average stock market. We didn't find the same, by the way, with in external culture of health. Actually, we did not find uh, those companies that did good external culture of health, their stock price actually underperformed, did worse than the S&P 500. And we have some explanations in our study. But the conclusions of this study, number one, it's important to measure organizations' efforts to build culture of health inside and outside the organization. Number two, it's pretty strong evidence that those companies that have good internal culture of health also have lower risk profile, lower medical expenditures, and better stock performance 
but more research is needed. You'd expect that from a researcher to look at this concept of external culture of health, what companies can do to improve the health of their communities. And so I know I'll pause here for a moment. Uh, there's a lot of data that I've communicated with you. I'm sure most of it is very, very complicated. Uh, and of course, you know, Johan knows this well. Consulting, that's where the real money is, right? So it's, <laughs> he's shaking his head. <laughs> so, but remember, final benefit, uh, if you do this right, you get happy, engaged workers who love their jobs. So with that, thank you again. Uh, all in favor of more frequent bathroom breaks, uh, raise your hand here. <laughs> all right, thank you again for inviting me. And uh, Johan, I think we'll have time for one or two questions. Yes, Jeffrey. Yes, uh, when you compare, for argument's sake, um, North America compared to, to Europe, you, you see a different kind of dynamics. Right. You know, Europeans, they walk a lot. Whether you're rich or poor, they are going to be walking, right? So they, they do things to, to sort of generate that sort of activity. In addition to that, they, they take more vacations, mm -hmm. right? And they're, they're not just taking vacation by themselves. They're taking vacation with their families. So they spend more time with their family. Versus in America, um, you know, it's more like, you know, it's so fast. You know, I, I got to get this money. So you end up with, what, two, three jobs, the average American. So, so you're, you're, you're burnt out by the end of the day, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it, it comes back down to the whole, you know, conversation mm -hmm. of culture. And how do you engage, how do you engage, you know, a people or a society to recognize that, listen, you know, yeah, we need, to, you know, the companies need to make the money, but we, we also need to find time so for, so they, for them to, to, to get that kind of um, family time, rest, or whatever they need to do. Yeah, I mean, I think you've nailed it. Uh, absolutely, kind of how you live your life and whether your life is just focused on work or whether work is a way of improving the quality of your life. But, yeah, if you go to Europe, other parts of the world, uh, people are slower, they're spending more time physically active. You know, if you go to Holland, for example, there are more bicycles there than there are people. Uh, there are bikeways. Uh, people use mass transit much more so. Uh, if you go to Italy and order eggplant parmesan, it's about this big. If you go to America, it's about that big. Uh, and it's an appetizer portion. Um, so in, in other parts of the world, including taking time for vacation, and taking time for leisure. Absolutely. So I think in Jamaica, you have that philosophy and mentality. You don't want to become neurotic and crazy like Americans, where they spend so much time and effort uh, and, and anxiety focused on their work. You want to take things in, in a kind of measured way, not leisurely, I don't want to say that word, but, but in a way that's more balanced, let's say. So I think that's critically important. And something that uh, perhaps we haven't talked enough about, being happy being happy with your life, being happy with your work, being happy uh, with your circumstances, and that includes your work life. So philosophically, mentally, uh, and physically, I think you're absolutely right on the money there. <laughs>